We are diving in to the Sermon on the Mount a little bit further. We started set it up last week uh, with a, a little bit of an overview of the message of the, the whole sermon. This week, we start unpacking it verse by verse. Here's a quick reminder to you. This sermon that Jesus preached fairly early in his ministry that Matthew's recorded for us uh, is Jesus describing the kingdom he's come to establish. One of the first things Matthew talks about, one of the first ways it describes Jesus is as a king, as a king whose ministry will flow straight out of promises that were made hundreds and hundreds of years earlier and recorded in the prophets of the Old Testament. That's Jesus' understanding of himself as this king. And so it's raised up a whole lot of questions for anybody who's reading Matthew. What is his kingdom going to be like? What should we expect from him? And the Sermon on the Mount is the most complete and most clear description of what his kingdom would be like and of who would have a place in that kingdom. What the kingdom would be like and who'd have a place in the kingdom. Now... I've just prayed for friends living on the other side of the world in the wake of a terrorist attack this week. And we are, this year is 15 years on since the attacks of September 11th. You start hearing religious people use kingdom language in this day and age, you get nervous. In a sense, I think we've developed, at least in the West, a new instinct for viewing kingdom language as really, really dangerous for religious people. And if that's what you're thinking this morning, maybe you're here with us because you're interested in learning more about Jesus, don't know that much about Him, want to see what He's all about, and you're hearing me talk about how we're going to talk about a kingdom for the next seven months, about Jesus as a political leader, that's how He saw Himself. Be a little bit nervous about that. And I, just at the top, I want to tell you, I think, I'm, I'm almost certain that what you're going to hear about his kingdom, what he says about his kingdom, even in the text we're going to look at this morning, is going to surprise you. The opening section of this sermon uh, is a section of, of the sermon that's been known as the Beatitudes. Maybe you guys have heard that word. It's from a Latin word that has to do with blessing. This opening section, Jesus starts off his sermon with these pithy statements, a series of eight pithy statements that are profiling the kind of people who have a place in the kingdom he's come to establish. What do they look like? What kind of character is theirs? Look, look really quickly before we get into it. Look really quickly. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 3, and look down all the way through verse 10, you'll see. There's these pithy little statements that follow the same formula. So it starts out, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what we're going to look at today. Then he goes next to, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And then, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And he just continues on through the next ten verses. So did, did you see how the formula works? There's a pronouncement that it starts with. Blessed. That's not a description of what's true of that person inside themselves. It's not about what they feel. Maybe your translation call, says happy are. Some translations use that word. It's not a great translation of this word. It isn't about an emotion that you're experiencing. It's a pronouncement from God on who you are and how he looks at you and what he's going to do for you. It's a promise. It's objective. 
It's not subjective inside you. It's objective coming from God. Blessed, I pronounce you. Who? And the next little phrase will always say who he's talking about. Here's who are blessed. The poor in spirit. Those who mourn. The meek. And so on down the list. And then finally, the last part of the formula is a description of what he means by saying that they're blessed. Here's what they get to enjoy. The poor in spirit have the kingdom of heaven. Those who mourn will be comforted. Those who are meek will inherit the earth. And so on. See how the formula works? It's, it's beautiful. It's also kind of complex. Each sentence is really heavy laden with meaning. And it's the key to understanding the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So for all those reasons, we're going to take them one by one. For the first time in the history of Trinity Church, you're going to be hearing some one-verse sermons <laughs> for the next two months as we go one by one by one. They're, they're that beautiful, that important, and, and, and really that central to the message of the whole sermon. It's worth the time. We're going to get into it this morning with the first one. The first one, which is, in a sense, a summary of all the rest of them. You could see the rest of them as unpacking what it looks like to be poor in spirit and what it looks like to have the kingdom of heaven for your own. The kingdom, Jesus tells us, belongs to the poor in spirit. He is a king. He's come preaching the kingdom, and now he's telling us who gets to be in it, who it belongs to. The poor in spirit are those who know they have no hope apart from the kindness of God. And those who have nothing to offer God in return for his kindness. Right here at the top, I want to just go ahead and make that clear. Everything I'm going to say today is meant to help you connect with that description, that summary. The poor in spirit are those who know they have no hope apart from the kindness of God. And that they have nothing to offer God in return for his kindness. Now to get there... Here's what we got to do. We've got to go back into Jesus' time, into his context, to understand what he means by the phrase poor in spirit. The blessing part is pretty clear. It's, it's an, a pronouncement of approval, of endorsement, of congratulations. The kingdom of heaven part, pretty clear. It's the whole sermon. But who are these poor in spirit? To whom the kingdom belongs. That's what we really have to understand. And to, to understand it, we've got to go back into Jesus' time. Before we can unpack what it means for us today, we've got to go back into his time and realize he's talking about something from the Old Testament. So we're going to look at that. He's using that something from the Old Testament to push back against something people thought at his time to correct a misunderstanding about the kingdom of, in his time. And then once we've seen what he means from the Old Testament and how he was pushing back against his time, then we're ready to see what it means for us in our time. Then we're ready for the central question we're going to ask and try to answer today. And that is, what does it mean for us that the kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit? Assuming we're here today because we want to be part of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing, we have to ask for ourselves, what does it mean that the kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit? What does that mean for me? If you have a worship guide this morning, you'll see I've, I've listed three steps. Those are three conclusions, three answers to the question, what does it mean for me if I want to be part of his kingdom, that the kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit? But I'm going to get us to each of those statements by helping us enter into Jesus' world to try to see where he was coming from, what he was drawing from as he, as he profiled the kingdom citizens here in the next few verses I want, to, I want to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I quickly read once again from 
Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to begin at the very beginning of the chapter. I'm going to back up to verse 1 to remind you of the context and then read through verse 3. This is the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. You can be seated. When Jesus said the kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit, there's a sense in which he was reading from an ancient script, one rooted in the prophets and writings of the Old Testament. And there's another sense in which he was saying something starkly countercultural. I want to make sure you understand both of those aspects. He's reading from an ancient script, but he's also pushing back against his time and what his friends were looking for in the kingdom. Jesus doesn't tell us what he means here by poor in spirit, and he didn't have to because his audience knew what he meant. And we can figure it out. We can see what they knew by looking to the books that they would have grown up reading and hearing in the temple. We can especially see what he meant when he said poor in spirit by looking to the Psalms and to Isaiah. Because the Psalms and the, the, the most famous and important of the prophets, Isaiah, are full of language describing God's people, the people he hears and responds to as poor. Now, Matthew says poor in spirit, so we'll know he's talking about more than poverty, more than physical, material poverty, not having money or clothes or place to live. He is talking about more than that. He is talking about a condition inside of you. But the first thing we need to know about this Old Testament context he's pulling from is that the condition inside of you of knowing that you're weak and, and, and desperate and helpless often came from a material poverty, from actually not having anything to protect yourself from the powers that be, from actually being desperate and helpless and oppressed. One of the main reasons the poor in spirit were poor in the Old Testament, or poor in spirit in the Old Testament, is that they were marginalized by society. And they weren't just poor in spirit often, but poor in body too. Came, but their, their poverty of spirit, their inner sense of being helpless and desperate, came from being pushed around a lot. From being shown day in and day out, they didn't have in themselves what they needed to protect themselves from what threatened them. The Psalms are full of language like this. I'm just going to give you a couple examples. Psalm 34, one of my favorite Psalms. Psalm 34, 6 says, The poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and delivered him out of all his troubles. This is the one who is oppressed, pushed around, marginalized. Psalm 82, similar language, cries out to God, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless, Maintain the right of the afflicted or the poor and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Psalms are full of language like this, of pleading to God for help because you're helpless against the powers that be and of God promising He is a God of and for those who have nothing to stand against the powers that be, the marginalized and the oppressed. It's all through the Psalms, but... 
what I want to point you to, especially this morning, is to what Isaiah has to say. So, lots of examples we could give. I want to, I want to ask you to flip over to Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 4. And the reason I wanted to show you the pattern here is that this is the verse Jesus used in the Gospel of Luke to announce to the world what his ministry was going to be about. When he started teaching, he enters the synagogue. Luke tells us this story. He enters the synagogue, a place where God's people, the faithful of God's people, under this foreign power who had oppressed them, came to hear the words of the Lord. Jesus comes to them. He stands up. He opens the scroll. And this is what he reads. This is what he tells them is fulfilled by him in their presence. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, To proclaim liberty to the captives. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. To give to them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. The poor, that they may be called oaks, strong, steady, oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities the devastations of many generations. This is what Jesus says he had come to do. To take people who couldn't stand on their own and make them into oaks of righteousness. Make them into the plant of the Lord so that when people look at them and see their strength, they say, how could these people be strong? So that, verse 3 says, he may be glorified. When Jesus says that the poor in spirit own the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about what Isaiah promised a long time ago. That the kingdom belongs to the powerless. Now when Jesus said these things, he wasn't the only one talking about the kingdom. There were plenty of people looking for hope. Israel was under an oppressive foreign government. Roman Empire had come in and taken over. They pulled the strings and called the shots. And every day, the people of Israel woke up to that reality. There were plenty of people looking for the kingdom to come and different understandings of what it would look like for it to come. When Jesus says that it comes to the poor in spirit, he's pushing back here against one particularly strong group. One group in his time who thought they had the answer for bringing in the kingdom. A group of people called the Zealots. A group of people called the Zealots. Now the Zealots were, were a group of Jewish people who believed that the key to bringing in the kingdom was violent uprising. They were shock troops. They were really active already by the time of Jesus' ministry, but they'd really come into their own about 30 years after his death. They were the ones who led this violent uprising against the Roman Empire and and, and led to actually a several years long war between Judea and Rome that ended with Rome coming in and destroying Jerusalem, burning it down, destroying the temple that's never been rebuilt. The zealots believed the key to the kingdom was power. 
military power. And Jesus is telling them, no. The kingdom is not about you becoming powerful enough to replace the powers that be with yourselves. The kingdom will come when I bring it. When I give it to those who know they don't have the power to throw off the powers that be. This isn't a kingdom that belongs to the powerful. Not one that belongs to military genius. Not one that comes to the soldiers who never say die and just keep on fighting. In fact, at the end of the Beatitudes, the last one in this long list that Jesus gives us of kind of profiles of kingdom people, Jesus comes back to a promise that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He uses it in the first one. He uses it in the last one. And look at what he says in that last beatitude in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Listen to who the kingdom of heaven belongs to here, if you want to know who the poor in spirit are. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Blessed are the marginalized. Blessed are the pushed around. They're the ones who get the kingdom of heaven. The zealots were all about throwing off the powers that be and becoming the powers that be. And Jesus says, no, you'll get the kingdom of heaven when you get persecuted, when you get reviled and insulted, when you are treated like the scum of the earth, then the kingdom of heaven is yours. Sounds a lot like the Old Testament language for the poor. What does this have to do with you? I mentioned we've got to go back into Jesus' world. Understand what he had been reading and then understand who he was talking to before we can appropriately jump to our world and ask what it means for us if we want to be in his kingdom that the kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit. Here's what I think it means. If we want to be with Jesus, we've got to give up our deep-seated, wide-ranging desire to be popular, to be among the powers that be. It's a colloquial way of putting what Jesus said then. We've got to give up our quest to be among the powers that be. There are other applications too, of course. It means that we don't take up arms to try to bring the kingdom in. Our kingdom, the one we live for and look for, won't come in because we're powerful on the battlefield. It also means we don't put a lot of stock in what political uh, participation can do to bring in this kingdom. It doesn't come to those who take over the political apparatus and use it to put Jesus' principles into practice. No, it comes to the poor in spirit, the marginalized, the outsiders. Those things are true. But I, but I think the, 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 the payoff for us, or the, the real application for us, is actually much more basic than that even. That we've just got to get used to, we've got to get over our desire to always be insiders to something great. We've got to give up the impulse in each of us to belong among those who are respected to win the approval or the favor of those who seem to have it going on. The poor in spirit aren't consumed by what others think of them. They aren't surprised when their ideals get them a bad reputation or make outsiders of them. 
they've given up on the approval of the in crowd and they aren't surprised when they're marginalized by others because the poor in spirit, the poor in spirit put everything on the approval of God. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, says that one of the best ways to, to translate the word that comes through as blessed, in my translation, is approved of. To be blessed, and the meaning of, of the word behind it, is to be endorsed or approved of. Who are the poor in spirit? Who must we be if we want to be poor in spirit? We got to be those who really only care to be approved of by God. And when God's approval matters most to you, friends, you'll have it. When God's approval matters most to you, you'll have it. That's the first thing we need to do. The first thing we need to accept if we want to be in this kingdom Jesus has come to build. We've got to accept that we don't get to be popular. But there's more. Saying we shouldn't worry about what other people think isn't actually that dramatic advice these days, right? I I feel like we're getting that message all over. Who cares what other people think? They don't get to tell you who you are. This idea has come into its own in the 21st century. Now all the push is to be yourself, right? To be who you are and be comfortable with that. To love and affirm yourself. But, but there's a sense in which Jesus pushes back here too. There's another important part of the Old Testament background to this phrase, poor in spirit. Another, another surprising contrast to what Jesus' hearers would have been expecting. The poor in the Old Testament who were promised God's blessing, they were those who knew not only that they had no hope apart from God, but that they had nothing to offer God in return for His help. The deliverance of the poor in the Psalms and the prophets, it's always unilateral. It's never a partnership. Where the poor give just so much and God makes up the deficit. The poor are those who know they have nothing and look to God for everything. And here, here Jesus is pushing back against another group in his time. So we mentioned the zealots. They were the ones who thought that for the kingdom to come, we have to bring it in by power, by military might. And Jesus is saying, no. The kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit, to those who are marginalized and look to God to establish them, not to their own power. And, and then, but the poor in spirit's a bigger, a bigger concept than that. It also, it also evokes this Old Testament sense of the poor as those who know they don't have anything to offer. They can't buy God's favor. They just have to receive it as a gift. Here he's reminding another group that they're wrong. That group is probably a little more familiar to you, a group known as the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a group, a, a, a sort of sect within Judaism at the time that Jesus was, was, was teaching that believed for the kingdom to come, the people of Israel had to clean up their act. That they'd gotten lax in their obedience to the law. That, that, they'd, that they'd kind of just taken what was the, 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 the hand that was dealt to them in their oppression and that they may as well just sort of ride it out and make the best of things gotten kind of loose in their participation in the temple or in the religious 
observances of their calendar, the different feasts and, and, and their practices of law. And so the Pharisees were this renewal movement, kind of like a revival within Judaism, who said, no, we got to get serious about obedience because it's only when we obey, when we become what God has called us to be, that God will restore us. So we'll get the kingdom when we're worthy of it. That's, that was what they believed. The kingdom will come when we're worthy of it. And Jesus says to them, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think what we, uh, a helpful place to turn to understand what he means here is, is to Luke 18. If you want to flip over just a little bit in your Bibles to another one of the stories about who Jesus is and what he taught and what he did, Luke's gospel, especially to chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable there, a story, trying to illustrate what, he, what his kingdom is like and who his kingdom is for. And here he uses a Pharisee to help us see what it isn't. Look at Luke chapter 18, beginning verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Get the setup. The Pharisees believed in themselves and treated others with contempt. And here's what Jesus says. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector, a collaborator. One who's part of the powers that be. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners. Unjust. Adulterers or even like this tax collector. Sounds like he's putting himself on the side of the poor, doesn't it? Pulling from those Old Testament references we we drew out earlier. The Pharisee thinks he's with the marginalized. But it's more than just material. Poor in spirit is a quality of spirit that the Pharisee doesn't have. Let's keep reading. I fast twice a week, he says. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector... Jesus continued, standing far off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What's Jesus saying? I think he's illustrating with a story here what he's saying in a much shorter format in our verse. The kingdom doesn't belong to those who earn it. To those who trust in themselves. To those who think they're worthy of it. This Pharisee thinks he's with the marginalized and the oppressed and against the powers that be, but he is not poor, he's proud. And the poor in spirit cannot be self-righteous. I think it's just a good reminder to us that we can't read this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, we mentioned this last week, we can't read this sermon like a, a test for entry like a, a, a catalog of the things we got to do 
that we've got to be able to produce in ourselves before we get in. Like a description of some sort of elite force that's worthy of the kingdom. That's not what this sermon is for. The path to a good life, according to Jesus, isn't being worthy. It isn't loving what's true of yourself. The path to the good life, to blessing and approval, is acceptance of truth about yourself. Poor in spirit are those who stop hiding from their failure. Who admit that they're not what they should be. That they're not what they expect others to be. There is no room for pretense in the kingdom of God. There is no room for pretense in the kingdom. So do you have a hard time admitting that you're wrong? When's the last time you apologized to somebody about something you did? Do you often find yourself talking about yourself? Maybe you have to drop in a lot of caveats to insist that it isn't really what it sounds like? Do you find yourself easily let down by other people? Do you spend all your time giving, never seeking help, never seeking input or correction from others? These could be signs, friends, that you're not poor in spirit. That what you really want is a kingdom that you're worthy of. Self-righteousness has no place in the kingdom. But before we move on, I want to clarify something else. We're not talking about self-hatred either. There's no place for self-righteousness, but there's also no place for shame in this kingdom. See, wallowing in guilt is just as self-absorbed, just as prideful as always talking about how great you are. Because when you wallow in guilt... What you're showing is that you're not willing to accept that this is just what you are. This is just me. This was as good as I could do. When you're shameful, you think you should be better. And you're not willing to let yourself off the hook for not being better. Not willing to accept that this is actually who I am. Shame and inability to break free of it is just more evidence that we're not poor in spirit. It could be that what's holding you back in your growth or in your stability is your unwillingness to acknowledge that you are not better than you seem to be. Here's the way one Puritan pastor put it. I'm loving this book. Several hundred years old now by a guy named Thomas Watson on the Beatitudes. It's so good. Here's what he says about as he's applying this, this verse that we're looking at today. He says, till we're poor in spirit, we are not capable of receiving grace. He who is swollen with an opinion of self-excellency and self-sufficiency is not fit for Christ. He's full already. If the hand be full of pebbles, it cannot receive gold. Isn't that a great image? If the glass is first emptied, The glass must be first emptied before you pour in wine. 
God first empties a man of himself before he pours in the precious wine of his grace. So friends, what are we, this is what Jesus was doing. He's trying to correct a misunderstanding among his hearers about what the kingdom would look like. He's saying it won't come when you become worthy of it. You are not the key to the kingdom coming. It comes to the poor in spirit. So stop pretending like you're worthy of it. What does that mean for us? It means that we just don't focus that much on ourselves at all. The poor in spirit don't pretend they have anything to offer, but they aren't fixated on their shame either. Somebody said that it's not that they think little of themselves, but that they think of themselves little. They're not looking in, they're looking up. They've seen all they need to see about themselves to know they don't have much. To know they have no hope apart from something that comes from the outside. So they're done looking at themselves. They're looking out. They're looking up. They're looking for the deliverer who comes to them in their need for forgiveness and new life. So you want to belong to the kingdom of Jesus? Don't pretend you're worthy of it and it's all yours. You want the kingdom? Stop pretending you're worthy of it and it's yours. I want to say one more thing. One more thing to sum up and drive this in a little bit further. Because the kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit, that means, friends, that we can't resent the painful path to Jesus. The pain is the path to Jesus. None of us, none of us start out poor in spirit. We become poor in spirit when God breaks us down. What we come like is like a wild horse. One that won't take a bit or a bridle, doesn't want anybody controlling it. Think of a bucking bronco that won't be ridden. That's the way we come. And the only way we get poor in spirit and the only way we get the kingdom is for God to break us of ourselves. And that hurts. Sometimes it comes when somebody points out a weakness that we didn't see. It hurts to have somebody point out a weakness you didn't see. Sometimes it comes when we lose something that had made us feel happy or secure. It always hurts to lose something that made you feel happy or secure. Sometimes it comes when we see somebody else enjoying the good things we want for ourselves but don't have. That always hurts. But it is pride in us that stands up and revolt. It's pride in us that insists we deserve more. It's pride in us that gets angry about the hard things in life. The poor in spirit recognize that they're not equipped to play the role of God in their lives. They aren't equipped to recognize, much less determine what's best for them. But more than that, the poor in spirit know that the pain is what God uses to make them poor in spirit. 
it's how we see just how deeply we need Jesus. Listen to Thomas Watson again. Same guy. Till we're poor in spirit, Christ is never precious. Before we see our own wants, we never see Christ's worth. Poverty of spirit, I love this part. Poverty of spirit is salt and seasoning. The sauce which makes Christ relish sweet to the soul. When you struggle with the rejection of other people, when you're brought face to face with your recognition of your need, when you start to see more deeply than you ever did before just how far short you've fallen, not just of your own standards, but God's. When you know what it is to have disappointment and loss, This, friends, is not the good life slipping away from you like some sort of inflatable being drawn out to sea. This is God giving you the kingdom. He's got to make you thirsty before He can give you living water. For your own good, he has to show you, you actually have nothing. And only then can he give you everything. I want to, before I pray, I want to read to you from Isaiah chapter 41. I promised you Isaiah was the key. That's what Jesus was talking about. I want to read to you a few verses and I'm going to pray. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the deserts the cypress, the plain, and the pine together that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Father, break us down. Do what you have to. But don't leave us there. Make us thirsty. And give us water. Make us hungry and give us the bread of life. Make us aware of our sin and give us the righteousness of Jesus. Make us poor in spirit, but, O Father, give us the kingdom of heaven. For your name's sake, we pray.
Amen.